this is the conclusion of a novel in which the narrator is um, unreliable. Characters at the edges and on the edge. Remaining a perpetual possibility. Lonely, violent, deeply American life. Only in a world of speculation. True ease in writing comes from art, not chance. Very fine is my Valentine. Very fine and very mine. You're listening to the Grand Podcast Abyss with John Pistelli. Great and puffed up with his retinue. Everybody, you're listening to the Grand Podcast Abyss. This is your co-host John Pistelli, and I'm here with the Master of Craft, Sam Worthington. Oh well, thank you, and I'm here with the Master of Story, John Pistelli. Well, Sam, I'm here with the Raider of Cities, Sam Worthington. Oh, how that one sounds honorable and ruthless to me, but not to be matched because I'm here with the near deathless mortal, John Pistelli. Well, I'm here with Samuel, the guide and the giant killer. That's right. I slew them all in dozens, but not to be exceeded by the man, the source himself, John Pistelli, the rapt bard. Now tell me, John, who are you? Where are you from? Where do you come from? What is your native land? And how did you sail those ships here to meet me? Well, Menelaus, uh, <laughs> as you can hear, gentle listener, today's topic will be Homer's Odyssey to uh, prepare, uh, just looking ahead to future programming, for some uh, subsequent episodes we'll be dealing with on James Joyce. Well, see, I'm in the dark about that connection, and I'll say that I reveled in this tale mm-hmm. reading this um, this past week, as we should, so much so that narrator upon narrator lapped and and layered over each its own and you lost track of which voice was coming from where and which point in time you were perceiving the action and the sequence of events and and then you realize that it's all being shared over over wine and and meat in the colloquial tongue of these of these Greek people so what what does that have to do with James Joyce at all um <laughs> <laughs> That's a tough question. Uh, uh, let me let me uh, do the politician thing and answer the question I'd like to answer rather than the one you asked. Um, it's interesting because one of the things we think of when we think of Homer, uh, or at least some of us, is the sort of primal or primordial fount of Western narrative, one of these earliest ur-texts of our tradition. Mm-hmm. And when you think of it that way, if you're not familiar with the text, if you haven't read it or if you've read it in school and haven't read it in a long time, you might think, well, this is a primitive tale. This is some kind of rudely narrated uh, thing. And then when you go back and read the Odyssey, as you were just saying, it feels very much like a layered, modern like a Joseph Conrad a novel. Polyphony, or a, a polyphony of voices. Yeah, polyphony of voices, nested narratives. There's two time frames. Mm-hmm. There's two plots, and then the one plot has two time frames, and the second one is, is a narrative within the narrative. I mean, it's very complex, complexly organized and arranged. Exactly, and I think a lot of that stuff takes place with the in the Phaeacians when he gets down with Alcinous and he sees the big bounty, mm-hmm. that's kind of the stable point. Yeah. And then he goes on the layered narratives, narratives, but within the narratives, there's, like you said, a nest egg. There's other encounters with other lands and other beasts and kings where he has to 
deploy the same tact and mannered way of being received in that ancient times, which involves sharing narrative. Like sharing yeah. narr- narrative is its own valuable currency. And it almost made me long for a, a society and a culture, not to say that I'm, that I'm converting into a classicist, but along for a culture where, where the valuation on, on speech and story and sharing and social spreading of, of one's own experience, uh, which is a kind of a novelistic form, where that's valued at a kingly level. Yes. But that's not valued in our time the way it was. No. I, I would say the closest thing to something that we see in our time in the Odyssey is that he often travels under a pseudonym and gives a false story or appears in disguise, particularly in the last third of the book when he returns to Ithaca mm-hmm. and to plot his revenge. We're just going to assume our listeners know the plot of the Odyssey. Uh, when he returns to Ithaca to plot his revenge, he is in disguise as a beggar. But he he also gives false names when he's traveling, most famously to the Cyclops. And that to me feels like we live in a very pseudonymous world, mm. particularly in the digital realm, mm-hmm. where you can take on any identity and you can take on other, you know, identities other than what you are, social classes, genders, even races other than what you are. And so that is maybe the closest thing we have to something Homeric, where kind of identity and narrative are a currency, but it does not occur in real life. We don't speak to each other this right. way. Yeah. Right, and things that are lost is, is the vitality of the active lie, of the voyaging lie, of the timely political social lie, of the lie that requires the affect and the form of the face, the teller of the lie, to corroborate it. Yes. So in (laughs) digital space, you have a frozen anonymous face, so the lie is static and the face loses its its importance in the in the success of the lie. Yes. You could see Odie, I call him Odie, uh, Odysseus rolling through Ithaca and how his face had to corroborate and, and contour to the lie he was telling. Yes. Though he he has the assistance of the god, particularly Athena throughout, too. Uh, the gods will intervene and transform your body. They will they make him taller, shorter, skinnier, more muscular, you mm-hmm. know. Decrepit. Uh, decrepit, yeah. Decrepit and dissembling. So this this divine intervention into the 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 corpus, I think, is very Alien, maybe, to our sensibilities, because it doesn't occur in the Christian or Jewish no. tradition. It, no, this almost vulgar bodily contact between mortal and immortal, between man and God, is unthinkable in a in a, in a Judeo-Christian yeah. theology. I mean, maybe not so much in the, in Christianity with con- bodily contact with with Christ the Man, um, but he doesn't. Yeah, have you know children or <laughs> no? He doesn't breed and yeah and shapeshift. I mean, the closest thing. This is actually an online conspiracy theory, but the closest thing is that stuff in the uh, the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible about the the giants who descended from when the angels coupled with the sons of men, mm-hmm. which seems to be the remnant of some older tradition. So there's like a hint of it in the mm-hmm. in the Judeo Christian, but it's a systematic thing in yeah. the Greek cosmos. But as you can tell, this is a text that is brimming with implications and influence. And when one reads it and takes the voyage, um, it's full of possibilities. It's full of interpretive possibilities. And that's part of why it's been, you know, maybe more fundamental than any other poetic narrative 
epic in, in Western literary history and why it's taught and through thousands of years, recited, memorized, and why it will never leave the academy and, and pedagogy. And John, you saw those dynamics, that sort of conservative traditional might of this text um, in your experience in the university and and what were you? What were some of your impressions? Well, my my history with the Odyssey is really interesting. I first read it. I read some sort of redacted for children version in Catholic middle school in about the seventh grade, and then in the ninth grade, I went to public high school and we read a prose translation that probably also cut out some of the dirty parts. And um, then I loved it. I was just able to read it very naively as an adventure. And those versions, I think, were sort of speeded up for younger readers. And so some of the uh, details that a younger reader might get, yeah. anthropological details a younger reader might get bogged down in wasn't yeah. there. Um, and I, when I read it then, you know, this was the 90s. So this was a time of uh, moral panic over violence and video games and uh, rap music and what have they you. They lost that battle. They lost that battle. <laughs> but I remember thinking, uh, reading the passages where he's killing the suitors and thinking, well, this is uh, – this is as violent as the famous video game Mortal Kombat, or, you know, it's or an Cop Killer. You know, it's an extremely violent text. It really is, yeah, and not not as violent as the Iliad, but but very violent. And violent um, in the sense that there's no cultural, morally inculcated conscience that checks that pursuit of yeah. a particular type of violence. Right. You're just supposed to cheer him on, like kill yeah. these fuckers, yeah. <laughs> just get, let's level these people. But it was a different culture. It was a culture where, and I heard this from, who's that historian of war who had that long tenure at Yale? Kagan. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Donald. The, yeah, the mentor, you know, the mentor in the text, but the, the mentor <laughs> to all the architects of 20th century American war, like Kagan, yeah, Donald Kagan. Right. Um, unassuming as he is. And, yes. <laughs> Um, delivering the most colossal <laughs> might that Western Western warfare has to offer through history, and so kind of a funny character, actually. Um, anyway, but he was saying that back in those days, it was it was a good thing if your native men could go conquer other lands. There was no yeah. moral compunction. There was no sort of ideological. Um, uh, Revulsion at being part of a state that would conquer and kill, it was, it was yeah. a good thing. Right. And that, that actually brings me to the next time I read the Odyssey. So <laughs> I did not read the Odyssey in college. Um, for whatever reason, I was assigned the Iliad in a Greek classics course, but not the Odyssey. So the next time I read it was my first year of graduate school. I was in a graduate seminar taught by a somewhat famous Marxist professor, and he assigned it and I only later learned that I think the reason he assigned it was because he was working on a project giving a Marxist denunciation of Nietzsche, who had revered the the more unembarrassed uh, conquering mentality of the Greeks we were just discussing. And so he went through the text and just sort of berates Homer <laughs> for the whole seminar about, um, you know, this, this you know, he's just described as raiding a city. And, and, uh, and the poet has no compunction about this. He hangs those poor slave women in his house because they had been carousing with the suitors. He wants to conquer the Cyclops because he's a, an indigenous person that doesn't farm and thus not working the land forfeits his title to the land just as uh, we claim when we dispossess the Native Americans, yeah. you know what I mean? And Laertes, so, 
the father of Odie, his brightest, most proud moment is when he witnesses his son and grandson in tandem and their conviction to kill and slaughter. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So he said that this, and he, I'm going to have to take his word for it, but he said this isn't present in other foundational epics. This, it's not present in his view in the Mahabharata or the Popol Vuh that uh, only Western culture has based itself on this oh, uh, yeah. conquering so, slaughter. So we're implicated from the very beginning. Let's dismantle the whole project, blah, blah, blah. Right. That's the easy way. But this text doesn't endure because it's hyper-violent. No. And because it's it it inculcates con- um, a, a mentality of um, ruthlessness and, and the conquering spirit. Um, and some might argue that that's why Western civilization rose, rose to its heights because of that very necessary inculcation. Yeah, that there's a dynamism that's yeah. not present in the the yeah. detachment of the yeah. Bhagavad Gita that we were talking yeah. about a few weeks ago. The glory of appointed, directed violence that's wedded to honor itself yeah. or like a social identity itself mm-hmm. that, that impels men to gather in tactic and build states that are superior to – Competing states. Right. There's like a functional state grab to it. But that's not alone the reason why it has endured through through history, right? It's, no. I mean, the poetics of it are magnificent. Yeah. Also, the universality to some of these things. I mean, there's some deeply human mm-hmm. characters. Yeah, I think um, – I, I would give the two main reasons it endures is probably – just the unforgettable imagery of that central sequence when he's narrating his titular odyssey where he encounters the Cyclops, the Sirens, Scylla and Charybdis. Um, who else? Who am I forgetting? Uh, the Lotus Eaters. Lotus Eaters. Um, Circe. Circe, who turns men into swine. All of these images, yeah. that they feel as authoritative as dream images. Yeah. They seem to come yeah. out of some unconscious. Sure. You know, and you just, once you've read these stories, you can't forget those, those yes. things. And that's the part that survived. I mean, we I guess we all know he kills the suitors, but when we talk about the Odyssey, we're thinking about books 5 through 12, we that are. voyage, that fantastical we voyage. We're thinking about about as a male we're thinking about how can I get me some of what he got because <laughs> right. it seems every nymph goddess and woman alike yeah. bows down for his whatever he's serving and you know part of me wants to say that the odyssey is be careful. <laughs> the odyssey is some, some sort of psychotic manual for men across eons of time who want to commit infidelity and not not get skewered for it. Like, right. Well, you have to go <laughs> he does tell you. got 20 years to bang whoever you want and then you come back. But as long as you, as long as you frame it in the right like tract of honor, then yeah, you'll I get away with it. I feel a little suspense when he's in bed with Penelope and he tells yeah. her the story. Yeah. And he's like, and I met the Cyclops. Like, you and did I, what? And I'm like, well, you know. <laughs> but he is a man. He of- the whole time and like eating goats. Right. <laughs> But he is a man of honor. There's that marvelous sequence where he That's meets true. Nausicaa, who's I think yeah. really on the cusp of the child and an adult, and right. she, and he, unlike you know Gustav von Aschenbach, yes. he covers his nakedness. He makes no he does sexual overture. Yes, like he, and I don't he, think it was just young. Uh, what was it? Asana, Asana? Nausicaa. Nausicaa. Annika. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it was young Asuka. Uh, <laughs> There was five other young yeah. nubile uh, uh, 
young women there. Yes, and he makes no— He said, I'm uh, embarrassed. Yeah, he's embarrassed. He covers himself. Yeah. No sexual overture. Yeah, so yeah. He, he has principle. But that's the guidebook. You know, there are certain things you can do. There are certain things you can't do. Yeah. If you want to get away with the whole enchilada. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah, they're just ha- they're hammered the whole time. I mean, they are everyone's yeah. stoned. Everyone's oiled up. Yeah, a lot of oil. Everyone's, everyone's tripping, and, sl- and the gods are coming in, hallucinatory yeah. visits to, and they're burning animals. And I read, I've read somewhere that we're probably the soberest generation in human history. You think so? Yeah, because of uh, potable water, you know. Oh yeah, you know, like we don't have to drink alcohol every meal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we don't ward off the, the toxins. Yeah, thus we don't reap the wards of the. The internal defense is at their fullest biological flowering and the perceptive gifts that may or may not follow. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, they're tripping. Sing to me of the man muse. The man of twists and turns. Driven time and again off course, once he had plundered the hallowed heights of Troy, the hallowed heights of Troy. Many cities of men he saw and learned their minds, many pains he suffered, heartsick on the open sea, fighting to save his life and bring his comrades home. But he could not save them from disaster, hard as he strove. The recklessness of their own ways destroyed them all. The blind fools, they devoured the cattle of the sun. And the sun god blotted out the day of their return. Launch out on his story, muse. Daughter of Zeus, start from where you will. And sing for our time, too. Sing for our time too. Oh, how shameless the way these mortals blame the gods. From us alone, they say, come all their miseries, yes. But they themselves, with their own reckless ways, Compound their pains beyond their proper share. So, John, I got this really longtime friend who loves the classic texts in ancient Greece and may or may not be a Straussian um, that I've been wanting to call and consult. Um, would it be cool if I gave him a call? Yeah, I love a good Straussian. Hey, Matt. Hey, Sam. You're on the pod. Oh, okay. Great. Glad to be on the pod. I've enjoyed uh, listening to it. You got some time to talk? Yeah, yeah. Sweet. Yeah, I'm free for now. I Matt, just got back from the zoo. You went to the zoo? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Did you see any cyclops? No, no, I didn't see any cyclops, any chimeras, uh, no pegasuses. Yeah. Um, Although I did see a couple of marsupials, which are sort of in that category. Well, cool, man. So 
Yeah, man, obviously you know the, the Odyssey well. You've been a, a committed reader and, and student of these texts for a while. We're talking about the, the Odyssey today. I was wondering about how you think about the difference between the ancients and the moderns, because there's so many ways that this text, these characters are like us, and there's some universal, maybe even philosophical truth that resonates in our modern hearts. But then there's these other ways that they're so foreign to us. Maybe their sense of honor and their rituals. And uh, what do you think about that distinction? Well, I think there's a lot of directions to go with that. Um, obviously, I I come at this something uh, sort of from a more of a Straussian perspective, where um, ancients and moderns, uh, the difference you can trace it to uh, an intellectual split that occurs um, in uh, the uh, 15, 14, 1600s, developed through there from the writings of Machiavelli, Hobbes, um, Locke, and all these other thinkers. And what the difference, if I had to put it as simply as possible, is it comes down to uh, Machiavelli's interest in the real rather than the imagined republic. So it's a transition away from uh, taking the notion, taking your notion of political action, the starting point from the best regime, which you find in Plato's Republic, to... uh, I guess, actual practice, what people actually do, being more um, realistic. So there's that kind of basic distinction. Mm-hmm. And what follows from that is a lowering, I guess, of um, the basis for political society to simpler passions. So in the ancients, there was uh, there was a focus on uh, the, the end of the city would mm-hmm. be what's highest in man. Um, so a good example of that would be someone like Achilles, the virtuous, he's kind of the courageous man sure. par excellence. Sure. So the city would really be geared towards producing someone like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, uh, you know, in Plato, that becomes the philosopher. Uh, but you see models of that, even of course, in the Odyssey and the Iliad. Well, in the, yeah, in, in the Odyssey... It seems to me like that's a uh, a plea for a type of monarchism, sort of like rest- restoration of the throne, um, uh, warning against its sort of oligarchic, parasitic democracy. And I've actually yeah. maybe maybe only maybe on, Matt maybe only rivaled by Lord of the Rings: Return of the King, and it's. <laughs> And it's a uh, uh, clarion call for the, the stability and the honor of the, mon- uh, the monarchy. But it seems like a tale that, that prescribes that. But then I hear all this shit going around. Of course, the Greeks are associated with the advent of democracy. So how do you square one of their most important epics with this, these claims for democracy? Well, I think where exactly the Odyssey stands on things like regimes you can you can start to tease that out through the text. There are democratizing things that happen 
in the Odyssey. So mm-hmm. this wine herd. When, um, yes, yes. What happens is that uh, Odysseus has to sort of raise up these lower people in in uh, his return, where he's killing all of what would be the nobility in his kingdom, essentially. Right. That's what the suitors are. Um, they're people who are from his empire. They're like they're sort of his citizens in a way. I think the pig herder also he's uh he's the person he's really competing with, I think, or he's brought into competition with is Telemachus. Um and I, I think the implication is that uh Telemachus will in some ways have to share more power with um the ox herder and the pig herder in the future. Matt, do you mind if I ask a question? Yeah. Um, what does the, you have to forgive me, I'm a bit of a vulgarian, I mainly know Strauss through Alan Bloom, um, but what does the Straussian make of Plato or Socrates' censure of Homer in the Republic, that this is not the proper basis of a regime, This uh, the disordered passions and the kind of vulgar portrait of the gods, uh, this is a, an inadequate text to instruct the rulers? Yeah, there's, well, the, I guess what is the famous criticism of uh, Homer and, and Plato is that, well, first of all, there's the, I forget where this is, but the, that poets tell lies is one of the one of the problems. I think what he says about specifically this in the Odyssey is that uh, where Odysseus goes into the underworld and meets Achilles, and Achilles says that it would be better to be a, a slave under an iron master um, than to be the king of the dead. Uh, and I think that Plato says that this is vitiating and it's not a lesson that should be taught to uh, young men. But really, I think the biggest uh, qualm that Plato has with the poets, and I think that this is to some extent just on the surface of Plato, to some, I, I don't know how, where he finally ends up on this question, uh, but it's that the, the poets don't actually know the truth. So they're instructing people without actually understand, having complete understanding, and that that's a dangerous basis for society. Um, the poets are also, in some ways, how people know the gods. Uh, that would be a... You know, not how the people who believe in the gods understand, and I'm one of those people, understand it, but um, there's a tension there also between the revelatory and the rational. What are some, yes. of, the, what are some of the benefits and advantages of believing in the gods, other than they might put the wind at your sails, dissemble you, give you the courage to strike down your enemies? I mean, these are some interesting benefits, but what are the benefits to... to um, committing to this belief system, this metaphysics? That is a, yeah, that's a question that I think the Odyssey is, it's one of the principal questions with which Homer's concerned. The Greek gods do seem alien to us, I think, especially if you're a, like a Catholic like myself, where uh, theologians go to pains to ascribe every possible good to God and explain how they all fit together. But the Greek gods seem to be more like people 
they seem to uh, simply have whatever their qualities are in a degree higher than any other any any mortal. Um, so it's not so they're not like good or evil. Um, maybe they're beyond good and evil. Uh, Ooh, <laughs> nice. And that's I think I think that also is uh, Homer's position in order to write uh, to write calmly about uh, horrible events. Is Odysseus? Could he be a philosopher king, Matt? That is, yeah, that is, I think Alan Bloom somewhere writes about, that's that's his take on the Odyssey, is that if uh, Odysseus were born later, he would be Socrates. Um, and he's he's too bodily, he's, kid, too, he's too physical, he's too sensuous, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, there's, uh, so there is that passage where Hermes shows him the nature of the molly. So it's supposed to keep him somehow safe from Circe's charms, if I recall. That's right. Um, from getting turned into a pig. Yeah. And uh, so I think what that episode shows is that, and this uh, is a, uh, maybe a controversial claim, but that, that a, the Odyssey is maybe the first philosophical work in that it depicts nature as we understand it in the West um, and what it consists of in the, the Molly, when he plucks it out, he sees the plant and then he sees the root. So there's one part that seems to correspond to body and one part that corresponds to mind and they are inseparable. And that is illustrated then by Odysseus's response to the men of the body of pigs but the minds of men uh so yeah you could say that odysseus is is uh almost a philosopher in that way it's also implied i i think that the fact that it took 20 years of him being away for things to even begin to come to a head which is partially due to penelope's genius also speaks to the wisdom of the rule that he had established. I mean, if we had if we had no government for twenty years in our country, can you imagine what would uh, what would happen? So he does seem to have been a wise ruler and a gentle ruler um, in former times. He was he was wise and virtuous enough to put the gods in his favor, so as to deter mutiny for that amount of time. Yeah, yeah, I I, I think it's. He seems to have been just, and that might even be one reason why the suitors weren't afraid of him returning home, is because maybe they thought he would be lenient. But well, they made a big something. fucking mistake. <laughs> well, yeah, and it's uh, so the proem of the Odyssey, the first what is it, ten or eight lines, the ones that Homer actually writes in his own voice. They spend uh, an incredible amount of, it's like, what is it, six of the lines, quite a bit of it. Um, maybe it's not that many. Uh, basically vindicating Odysseus for killing the suitors. So basically saying they deserved it. And that is by no means clear. Uh, 
I mean, the, the Trojans are depicted much more um, compassionately, as are the Achaeans, and they did much more horrible crimes. I mean, Odysseus spends... The first thing he does is go on a pirate raid, um, and he doesn't even try to justify that as a continuation of the Trojan War. Um, but it, it creates really a puzzle to my mind, I think, uh, what this new order that Odysseus is establishing. And I think you're right that it's not simply philosophical. I think it's... I think it's it reflects a new order of the gods as well. And it's, it's theological in that way. I'm struck by how similar that reading is, though, with the values inverted, the kind of Alan Bloom reading that if Odysseus had been born later, he'd be Socrates. That's uh, pretty much Adorno and Horkheimer's position in the dialectic of enlightenment, that it's the first bourgeois novel, that it establishes bourgeois perception as that which subdues and incorporates myth through various kinds of imperial raids. Um, though of course they think this, they they lament this, they they criticize this from the from the leftist position. But it's I think they're seeing the same thing. They're seeing the same root of that um, building of this rational individual out of this world of myth. Yeah, I could see that. So, if, if, especially if I was coming at things from a kind of Heideggerian view, and I wanted to to either deconstruct the West or move past it. Um, The Odyssey would be a good place to start because uh, maybe the most sort of shallow surface way of looking at at what the West is, is uh, that it's reflected in two types of men, Achilles and Odysseus. These character types... Um, are reflected by the two most famous Greek city-states, Athens and Sparta, where uh, Odysseus kind of stands for Athens, the, the wise people, the people who are clever, who like to use ships, who live by the sea. Uh, and then Achilles, more courageous, fights in the day, not in the night. Uh, strongest in battle, martial-spirited, um, always believes in his own prowess that sort of uh, reflects Sparta so there seems to have been these two kind of poles of the Greek uh, of the Greek city-states and uh, I think that that becomes a blueprint for everything that came after well Matt um, thank you so much for giving us your time today any closing words on this text I think the question that I'm sort of struggling with the most is why Odysseus does not, why he chooses the human um, in rejecting Calypso's cave. I think that that's an extraordinary political choice too, because he chooses particularity. And I think if you want to take it in a political direction, that might be one place to start. Other than that, I mean, it's just, it's probably, possibly the greatest book ever written, and all the listeners should, should definitely give it a look. As King Ausnes, Matt, and as King Ausnes referred to Odysseus, what I can say about you is, is Matt will never lie, the man is far too wise. 
yeah, those two things definitely go together. <laughs> <laughs> Honesty and wisdom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but he's a shrewd yeah. man and a cunning man, and I hope to have you back. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Odysseus's choice to leave Calypso's island, where pleasures were resplendent and abundant and always taken care of in her nymph-like charms, a place of pleasure, and to, uh, to go back out on the contingent threatening seas. And, yeah, it's interesting to me that Matt described that as a political question, because I think that that maybe gets us to an answer. When we first meet Calypso, she's described as weaving, just as Penelope weaves, and yet the emphasis of the description um, is on nature. So thick, luxuriant woods grew round the cave, alders and black poplars, pungent cypress too, birds roosted, uh, et cetera, et cetera, soft meadows, et cetera. Uh, we get a lot of focus on the natural. So she has a domestic hearth, she has a loom, but otherwise we're sort of in the natural world when we're with her. And so for Odysseus to stay with her would be, in a sense, to accept the natural. And she's divine. She's a nymph. So it would be his alliance with the gods, but it would also be his disaffiliation with that human statecraft that we've been talking about. Because on his island, he's the leader of the state. On hers, he's just uh, a part of nature. Well, she was a bit, uh, she was a bewitching nymph and she was a lustrous goddess and she craved him for a husband. But there was one thing that she could not provide to him and one thing that's motifically um, a motific refrain through this poem is Odysseus as a man who knows pain like no other man in the world. And at one point in the text, Odysseus is a man who enjoys this pain, or this pain is part of his struggle, or his soul, or his assertions. And on Calypso's island, there was the absence of that vitalist pain in the presence of a certain castrating pain. Yeah, that he's not... Um, it, it almost would... To, for him to become a god would forfeit that manhood that's capable of transformation. He's the man of twists and turns, the polytropic man, we're told in those first lines. And for him to become a god would be to become static. And I think that one of the things about this poem that makes it um, uh, the Strassians will have to forgive me, but that makes it a, a modern text as much as an ancient text is there's a sense in it. Uh, it's it's incohate, it's nascent, it's not systematic, but there's a sense in it of bildung, that this is a man who changes, who grows. 
Um, he commits that pirate raid early in the poem, but then when he's in the underworld, Tiresias tells him, you know, you have to master your passion if you want to get home. You have to tame your wild desire. Um, and so if he stays in Calypso's cave, if he, it's, he's, what it would be is he'd be staying in the womb, you know, he wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be born and reborn mm-hmm. uh, into the world. And when Telemachus is trying to um, get information about Odysseus from Nestor, he refers to him in his appeals as a wanderer, Odysseus the wanderer, and then immediately after that, more than all other men, the man was born for pain. Yeah. And that's even the basis of his name. That's what Odysseus means, like the man of pain, the suffering man, we're told. Which brings to mind that short little chapter. I think it's chapter in the in the 15, 16 range in Moby Dick where they're – I think it's the Lee Shore. You remember the Lee Shore? It's a tiny little chapter, and it's describing how much and could probably could not have been written without the Odyssey. Mm-hmm. And it's describing how ships just offshore are – if they're threatened with – high waves and 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 stormy thunderclouds and maybe there's crags near the shore big rocks jutting out of the the water that if the ships tried to land at that time they would be crushed to their death but on the shore there's the succors of home there's home and hearth and baths and bed and cloth and wine and barley um, in their native lands, and they long for that. If the choice is made to pursue home, hearth, and comfort, you will die. The only way to survive is to go back out to sea towards pain. Mm-hmm. So that's a very Odyssean yeah. moment and, and the ethic maybe behind his departure from Calypso. Right. And that's, yeah, I, I didn't actually, Melville was one of the only writers I didn't mention in my post, but uh, on the Odyssey on johnpastelli.com, but I talked about the way that Dante... And Alfred Lord Tennyson portray Odysseus in the Divine Comedy and in Tennyson's poem Ulysses. And they uh, they depart from Homer because ostensibly in Homer, he wants to get back to his kingdom. But they see in him this insatiable wanderer. So Dante gives you his final voyage that brings him to death and that leads him to the inferno where he's punished for his hubris. And Tennyson puts a different spin on it, a 19th century progressive imperialist spin of his heroism, seeking this far horizon to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. Um, But each of them sees in the poem that whatever investment it seems to have in the longing for home, nostalgia, the nostos, that's all sort of a, a rhetorical cover for this insatiable desire to Rome. And in fact, he does have, we know that he'll take another voyage after this because Tiresias in the underworld says to him, once you get home, you know, settle in, but then you got to go back out. And he gives him a mission, which is to take his oar to the furthest people he can find. Uh, And the sign of what he needs to do is Mm -hmm. when they don't know what the oar is and they think it's a winnowing fan, Mm -hmm. when there's such a settled agricultural order that they don't recognize an oar and then plant it in the ground, which I take to mean to sort of spread the gospel of maritime commercial empire. Because if we're being real about it, if we want to be real about why he departed Calypso's Island, it's because quite simply the narrative – 
must continue. And then we can take that in a, in my developing 21st century meta-allegorical view of protagonist as narrative itself or watching itself as the unfolding of the narrative. Quite simply, it must move forward once you reach the end retroactively, all twists and and contingencies make perfect sense, but we don't get the rollicking and the thrust of Odysseus epic without that choice and all other choices built in to sort of a seamless whole that is the structure in the epic. Yeah. And that's sort of a meta no, and I, view, but it's I think what's it's, happened. It's what yeah. literally it's what happens. Right. That's the cool thing about that view is like it seems so distant and alien and like what a far out psychedelic thing. But then right. actually take a step back and observe the mechanics of of what you're experiencing. Yeah. And you realize that on the almost like that first level, platonic level, it's like that's actually what's happening with narrative. Yeah. And it it happens in the poem because he himself narrates so much of it. He becomes the voice of the mind and the agent of the text. Epics and novels finish because they must be finished or they finish themselves. Yeah. Or there's a logic to character mm-hmm. in the propulsion of that finished. And then you look back and it's frozen. Yeah. In sequence, determined. Um, but we were talking about Calypso and gender. Mm-hmm. So she's she begins, she sort of begins the attitude of gender relations in the Odyssey, masculine versus feminine, masculine being more public facing, um, um, filtered through the, the glories of um, war and competition. Feminine being more inward-facing, tending to home and hearth and sort of manners and dignities of the, within the state. But So that sets the tone for those gender relations. But how do you trace gender relations through the poem? I guess I um, more or less agree with the critics who find it uh, relatively misogynistic um, in the sense that uh, first of all, you have that defined sense of gender role. So the poem begins with Telemachus. How do we know he's become a man? He puts his mother in her place. He yells at her. He says, stop crying, woman, and get back in your room, and I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. And that's how we know he now stands tall. He keeps saying, I'm not the boy you knew. And that's how we know he's not a boy, that he can command his mother. He commands the household as a man. Um, and then the sequence of women Odysseus encounters in his travels, whether it's Calypso, Circe, the Sirens, um, they all, even Nausicaa to a point, they all represent the threat of a kind of unmastered, irrational, inactive, inert sort of surrender to the body, to the sensual, uh, to the animalistic, so woman as nature that needs to be transformed under the hand of man. Um, is there a counter-reading? Am I, am I too ungenerous? Well, I think that's, that's more or less what happens. But I'm interested in the depictions of uh, the, a feminine terror, a feminine monstrosity, a, feminine, a f- femininity as a thing that lures and captures and threatens man and that he has to find the courage and the and the shrewdness to work his way out of. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that, <laughs> I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Be careful. <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, that 
that seems that seems like broad strokes. And they're also nuanced myths because you have Athena, you have a, a Penelope's the, sovereignty yes, reason. Those are the two. And her choice to um, to not immediately fall at the mercy of Odysseus when he returns, but to test him and to gauge him and her prudence. Right. And you also have the queen. Who's that real powerful queen? Um, oh, the queen of the uh, the, the uh, Phaeacians. Oh, and Alcinous's wife. Yeah. Yeah, I don't remember she was She was an object of... Um, kind of final admiration or right. final impress in mm-hmm. in that court. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a it's a narrative that's not devoid of feminine power and influence and dignity. Yeah, but it's also riddled with this trope of uh, feminine treachery, which can be um, which can be um, combined with a, a type of. Misogyny. Yeah, easy. where the climax is the slaughter of the yeah. the maids, the, yeah. the sort of brutal hanging yeah. of the maids. Um, but yeah, you're right that Athena. So I mean, the main counterexample is of course Athena, who makes almost everything happen in this poem, um, and she represents sort of mind and cunning and reason itself. And then Penelope, who is fitting as the wife of Odysseus because she too is the master of craft. She literally weaves this deception for the suitors that delays their um, advance. So, um, so yeah, you have, maybe it's not so much a gender distinction, though it has a gendered overtone because we also have men, most prominently the Cyclops, who also represent this uh, inert nature that is unmastered by reason. So I think that Homer, whatever that is, the name of, uh, doesn't discriminate between men and women, but between two states that might be gendered, but which men or women could partake in a kind of rational control and a kind of undisciplined surrender to the natural. Well, that sounds like a a Judith Butler special. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Who says we never dally in left-wing thought on this podcast? Yeah. <laughs> So there's gender and then there's race. Or is there? <laughs> there's, there are tropes that were later racialized, I guess is how I'd put it. Um, most prominently with the Cyclops, again, who is uh, the, the charge against him is that he's a— uh, the Cy- Well, it's not just him. He's part of the race of the Cyclops. And the charge against them, the reason that the, they are condemned in the poem— is they're lawless, they have no state, they have no council, and that has its basis in the fact that they are pastoralists rather than agriculturalists. Mm -hmm. Um, And to me, that echoes the justifications for the colonization of the New World in the early modern period, which is they, you know, your philosophers, I I guess your John Locke's or whatever would say, well, the Native Americans don't cultivate the land because they tend to be nomadic pastoralists and thus they don't own the land. They have no right to the land. Mm-hmm. We're gonna we're gonna actually do something with this land. Uh, and so you hear that echo in the Cyclops sequence. Hmm. But I've heard some who was it, Derek Walcott? Mm-hmm. Um he he went so far as to depict and other writers as well depict these ancient Greeks not as a white marbled statue that that um, that sit in museums today, but as essentially Africans. Yeah, I think there's a there's a trend in academia. I guess it's sometimes called revisionist that goes back to the 
the 70s or 80s that talks about how Greek culture is really just an extension of the cultures of the Eastern Mediterranean, that, the, you know, it's Phoenician, it's Egyptian, it's African. and Ethiopian, if they're lucky. If they're lucky. <laughs> um, and so if you, if you could go back to, if you could go back to Homer's Greece, you know, if all these guys, if all these guys on Twitter with Greek marble statues in their avatar. Talking could, about the vitalists? Yeah, if they could go back to Homer's Greece, they'd be quite startled, I think, at, at an experience they'd find to be gaudily, brightly painted, yeah. uh, tribal-seeming yeah. dance, music, ecstasy, yeah. something they would find, quote-unquote, African. Um, and I think that's, I think that's fine. I think that's great. I think I'm a, I'm a, I'm one of the people who thinks that we should read the canon because it belongs to the world and it's not this narrow, uh, narrow European no. phenomenon. So, Sam, I, I see here that you've taken some really detailed notes on the Odyssey, and I was wondering if you might like to share some with our uh, audience. Yeah, well, thanks for asking, John. That's, that's, uh, that would be a pleasure. So, Poseidon is the earthquake god. Hermes is a guide and a giant killer. Mortals blame the gods for their pain, but that only increases their pain. Athena sticks up for Odysseus. The suitors are quote-unquote swaggering. Yes. <laughs> Feel free to react to any of this. <laughs> it's uh, funny to imagine them, all a hundred men swaggering <laughs> in different yeah. directions in a courtyard. And Phemius, our bard, who I think we're going to talk about in a bit, Phemius generates a rippling prelude. Yeah. There's a lot of good adjectives and adverbs in fagels. I guess that's why they call it muscular. Laertes, Odysseus' father, he's, he's on the farm. He gets fed by a woman, but he's old and withering. So Telemachus, he bitches out the assembly of Achaeans. He said, you should be ashamed. And, 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 and to know, what, how do you say his name? Antinous? I, I don't know. Antinous. He's the antagonist. Yeah, he's the Antinous. leader of the suitors. Antinous. Mm-hmm. He's such an ineffectual, impotent villain. Yeah. He's such a talker. Yeah. The second half of the poem's a little bit of a letdown, did you think? Um, well, I enjoyed the the gruesome bloodshed. So, I like that, but yeah. the, it has a really long lead up. <laughs> it does. But you get some insight into the gods. Like, yeah. And I like the House of the Dead. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's one of the best parts. That's one of the best parts. Uh, what else here in my notes? So... You brought up Helen. Mm-hmm. She refers to herself as a shameless whore. Oh, interestingly, I was just reading an article about that. So um, we've been reading Fagel's muscular translation, but the most recent translation of the Odyssey, or one of the most recent, is the first completed by a woman, uh, Emily Wilson. Nice. And she um, she used to be on Twitter, and she would spend a lot of time sort of comparing her translations to the choices of the men who went before her, like Fagels and Fitzgerald and Lattimore. Um, and she often found a kind of hidden bias as she she saw it. So I was reading mm-hmm. a review. I haven't read her version of the Odyssey. I've, what, is she, what is she about? But she um, she wants to both bring out some of those racial and gender and class-based critiques of the Odyssey we were talking about, but also kind of amplify the voices of the female characters. And so she, I was reading a review of her 
translation in which it talked about her, just that line where Helen calls herself. And in Fagel's translation of the Iliad, she says the same thing, shameless whore that I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's similar in, in Fitzgerald. And Emily Wilson says that, she, I think she translates it as, because uh, she says the line particularly is something like having a dog's face. So she translated it as, the men at the Trojan War fighting over me were hounded by my face. Whoa. Um, and so that that is a less sort of misogynistic, less sort of blaming herself qua victim nice. of this trespass. Um, That's wonderful. Yeah, it's a good translation, though. There is something exciting about Fagel's vernacular. Uh, we do like it. <laughs> we do. And what about, what about page 56, man? Which means nothing because I'm... We're not sharing the same text. Page page 56. Uh, When uh, Telemachus and Menelaus are talking, and they're in so much pain reliving the trauma, that Helen thinks to slip into their wines a drug, a heart's ease, which dissolves anger and takes away trauma and gives the magic to forget all their pains. Not so that they lie in sedation, but so that they can keep recounting. Yeah. So that they can keep... Right. Generating recall and, and narrative. Isn't that a beautiful drug? Yes, that it, it dulls the emotion just, just enough, enough to go on, but not enough that it suppresses. Yeah. What is this? What is this sort of chemical rumination from the ancients? I know. Let's I just mean. think about that for two hours. I mean, and you wonder, you just wonder about even that mechanism in the imagination. Yeah. And how traumatized these people were, how much yeah. bloodshed they'd seen. There's a lot of emotion in this poem, a lot of crying. Who said the... men don't cry? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was that was beautiful. And then Helen starts talking about Odysseus and how he was scarring his body with mortifying strokes to get into Troy mm-hmm. to dissemble from the Spartans in disguise. And then she, I think, she got pretty attracted to him. Mm-hmm. So that, so if you're trying to attract a woman, be you know, put a bunch of scars on your body. So there's this badass. Check this out. So Odysseus is on the hunt, mm-hmm. John. So he's rolling. He's rolling on the sea. This is a book about being on the ocean and dealing with Poseidon's vindictive designs. The wind lifting his spirits high, royal Odysseus spread sail, gripping the tiller, seated astern, and now the master mariner steered his craft, sleep never closing his eyes, forever scanning the stars. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. I don't sleep. Yeah. But when sleep comes in this narrative, mm-hmm. it really comes. Right, yeah. And it's very um, effective. Yeah. There is a lot of insomnia there. There's a lot of descriptions of tossing and turning and debating with oneself all night. But yeah, always scanning the stars. It's too bad, you know. People talk a lot about this, but I don't think they capture the full tragedy of it is that uh, in the 20th century – popular literature and, you know, whatever you want to call it, artistic literature diverged. And one of the things that happened there is that, you know, serious artistic literature loses the hero. Mm. You only find the hero in Lord of the Rings or Dune or, you know, which are fine. I've never actually read Lord of the Rings. I like Dune or Superman, uh, but you never get that. Do you ever get an unvarnished sense of heroism when you pick up a literary novel? Somebody that's always scanning the stars. Maybe Cormac McCarthy. Maybe McCarthy. Yeah. 
But isn't that doesn't that have to do with postmodernism's incredulity to meta narratives? Yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That nobody nobody has the the right to that mastery. It's too dangerous. Mm. I love in this I love in this poem where when he ever when he gets when Odie gets to new place and he's wondering about the people there, he'll say, "What are they? Violent, savage, lawless, or friendly to strangers, God fearing men?" Yeah. Like, what are they here? Right. Violent, savage, lawless. The, the English love that part. Right. Oh <laughs> that's yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> very imperial. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is so strange that he. Is he does that pirate raid at the beginning, and it's uh, does that factor in? Does that always factor into his calculation? Or nobody was more civilized than the Trojans. That's one of the points of the Iliad that the Trojans have the civilization. It's the Greeks who are the whooping war well, band. It, is it a bit a- uh, anachronistic to even call it colonialism? Or I'm actually it's not because that word comes from Greek yeah, city I, states, and they made colonies. It's not anachron- no, anachronistic. No, I think it's, it's ori- original. Yeah, quite original. This gets to what you were saying you're in, in the on the John Pastelli pages. How much is art implicated in the in the horrors and the un, injustices that it represent that it represents? Can we hold Homer to account for these crimes, which may have not, which may not even have been crimes in the old world? Yeah, what fascinates me. So in my in my post, I you know I talk a little bit about Emily Wilson. I talk about Adorno and Horkheimer. Talk about Eric Auerbach. But then I go all the way back and I talk about Plato, that there's a long tradition of criticizing Homer on political and ethical grounds, that his poems are, um, I mean, we saw this in our own show earlier on Death in Venice, that uh, art uh, is always implicated in this immoderate desire that will somehow destroy the world through Mm -hmm. political aggression, sexual aggression, whatever it is. But what I think is so fascinating is that it's almost as if Homer, you know, again, whatever that means, knows that critique is coming because there's two parts in the poem where one right at the beginning and one right at the ending where the bard figure is accused of harming the, the polis, harming the society. This is the transhistorical question for you. Yeah. This is the big moment. Yeah. That accusation and its ultimate Conclusion. Yeah. So where do you stand on it? Where do you, do you think that question still rages in Western civilization? Yeah, I think it's never going to stop. I know that I have never stopped answering it. I mean, I, I have a simplistic answer, which is, uh, you know, more power to the poets. Uh, like Gabriel Conroy and Joyce's The Dead, uh, he wanted to say that art was above politics. I very much do. Um, and yet there's always this nagging question. There's always a Nazi, there's always a pedophile, there's, mm-hmm. all, you know, there's always something mm-hmm. that makes you think, well, are you sure? And, uh, and the two answers we get in the Odyssey, so there's two moments with the bard. Uh, the first one at the beginning is the bard, and it's the same guy, Phemius, right? That's his name, Phemius? Mm-hmm. He starts singing a song at the beginning in Odysseus's household about the Trojan War, and Helen is reminded of her misfortune, reminded that her husband is gone and may not be coming back and starts crying. And she scolds the bard and says, can't you sing a more pleasant song, etc." cetera. Um, and it's funny because it is so reminiscent of these debates we have today. Maybe they were a little more prominent a few years ago, but about trigger warnings and, you know, can you be re-traumatized by 
by art. Micro possessions. Yeah. And Telemachus says to Penelope, it's not the bard's fault Hmm. because they always are going to sing the most popular and interesting song on the subject matter that people are most arrested by. So stop yelling at this poor guy. And that reminded me so much of, uh, you know, we talk of art for art's sake. And one of the places that phrase, is come, that phrase comes from is from the, the French, l'art pour l'art, which comes from Théophile Gautier's manifesto. Oh, from, Gautier, yeah. Yeah, from the 1830s. It's the preface to a novel no one ever reads, uh, Mademoiselle de Maupin. Have you ever read that, Sam? No. No, me neither. <laughs> I just read the preface in the Norton Anthology of Le Roman. Uh, Literary Criticism de and Theory. De la Femme. <laughs> Mais Gautier, uh, <laughs> he, he says in that preface, he says, because um, he's responding to critics who are criticizing primarily the theater for having too much sex and violence at the time. Oh, what's new? And he says... That's just what happens in the world, that people want to see it because that's what's happening on the street. And if you have a problem, why don't you clean up the street and give artists something else to write about and stop harassing the artist, which is what Telemachus says to Penelope. And I think there's a lot to that. I think that as long as – I think people – this is always my objection to Marxists. So Marxists have this theory that the base – determines the superstructure, you know, the, the mm-hmm. means and modes and relations of production of the society. That is what de- determines what gets built at the cultural level. And yet they've spent 100 years criticizing the cultural level. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, fix the base. I mean, it's your theory. Mm-hmm. Worry about the base. Leave me alone. I'm just writing about what is. And I don't primarily think art is the thing that corrupts society. I think art is just the mirror to a corrupt society. Well, here's an even more important question mm-hmm. than all those. When Circe's turning Odie's uh, mates into swine and Odie gets dosed up with Molly to prevent him from getting pigged out by Circe. And then she notices her her potions don't work on him. And then he rushes her with a sword and she gets very servile and, and, um, and attracted, one might say. Mm-hmm. I don't want to make the feminists angry, but kind of attracted in that moment yeah. to the— to the dominance right. that Odie displays. And she says, you have a mind no magic can enchant. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a necessity for a warrior. This is a necessity for someone who— because we're all, in a sense, in Odysseus' narrative, because we all go through these things. We face these similar trials, whether they're in a mythological form or not, or whether in our, our just mundane human relations. There are aspects of this poem which permeate our personal— arc of a narrative as a as a descendant of Western civilization. I think it's that locked in, probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there's that type of universality. And there's things like courage and shrewdness and cunning and and patience and 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 wit and tactfulness. They mention tact over and over again. Mm-hmm. It's like what are these how do we inculcate these virtues, this character into our people? But this is one of those moments. You have a mind in which in no magic can enchant. Mm-hmm. He's unaffected by charms coming from this trickster, terrifying, feminine terror. Yeah. But talk about that, having a mind that no magic can enchant. I know you talked about magic a yeah, couple episodes ago. Right. It's, I think I referred in our discussion with Matt to Adorno and Horkheimer's reading of the poem as not a poem transmitting myth. 
and magic, but as sort of subduing it by incorporating it into the construction of this rational hero who's able mm. to travel unmolested through these magical lands. And there's a paradox, though, which is uh, the reason we want to read it is we want to encounter that magic. We we ourselves want to. It's almost as if to change your reference from Circe to the Sirens, it's almost as if we want to be Odysseus tied up so he can't run away with the magic and submit to it, but with his ears free so he can hear it. So we know what it is. We can experience it in this contained way mm. of the of the poem, but we don't. Uh, but the, the the container itself rationalizes it enough that it doesn't subdue us, that it doesn't uh, bow us down to its will and turn us into swine. John, I was really digging what you were saying about the bard, and it made me think of a a portion of a passage of a moment of a particular towards the end. We haven't talked about this yet. When Telemachus and Penelope devised the competition within the suitors to see who could shoot Odysseus's bow um, and shoot an arrow through 15 axes. Mm -hmm. And any victor of that competition would would be um, acceptable for marriage. So this was part of the what they were weaving. And, of course, no one could handle Odysseus's bow because it was... Only, you know, because he's the man of all men. And mm -hmm. they don't possess his strength because they've been eating pork for 20 years, not doing any work. And he's been sailing around the around the Mediterranean fighting Cyclops. Right. <laughs> like a difference in, in, in muscular dexterity and, and strength at this point. Mm -hmm. Which is, that that moment actually is very relevant for men everywhere, like... This idea of atrophy versus activation, mm -hmm. the loss of muscle versus the gains of strength. Mm -hmm. That's very much running through the consciousness and the spirit of of modern modern young men. And it always will be, and it's deployed here. But in that moment of Odie's assertion of his strength, and it's sort of a very kingly, restorative, monarchic moment mm -hmm. where the king is earns his power. And the, it's not a metaphor of an athlete that Homer uses to liken Odie's success. It's not a metaphor of a warrior. It's not a metaphor even of a skilled laborer. Mm -hmm. It's a metaphor of the bard that he uses to describe Odie's grand moment, glorious moment. He says, so they mocked, but Odysseus, mastermind in action, once he'd handled the great bow and scanned every inch, then... Like an expert singer skilled at lyre and song who strains a string to a new peg with ease, making the pliant sheep gut fast at either end, so with his virtuoso ease, Odysseus strung his mighty bow. So it's music. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the bow and the lyre are, are stringed instruments. They're both, uh, you know, they're both stringed instruments in the hands of the virtuoso, which is a great, I don't know, what on earth Greek word <laughs> Fagels could be translating as virtuoso, but it's a great word choice on his part. Um, yeah, and I think that, that that goes back to what we were saying about Odysseus as kind of the 
composer of the poem, the, the master of stories, the master of craft, and the poem is so well-crafted, and the poem is a kind of house for all these different stories that he's able to tell. And just as he made his own, literally, we find out, makes his own bed out of a tree root, he's able to transform nature into the most splendid uh, and cunning artifice. And even maybe disturbingly, but even his most violent acts become implicated in that aesthetic gesture. So how does that the bard, or the artist, or the poet, or Homer himself, how does he come out in the end in this poem? Well, the actual bard of Odysseus's household, Phemius, he gets another moment at the end of the poem where Odysseus has had ordered Telemachus to kill the traitorous women and in, in that shocking passage. And then they cut the uh, the balls off that poor guy uh, who had also, I think, one of the stewards of the household who had been uh, loyal to the suitors and not to Odysseus. They cut off his genitals, fed them to the dogs, and cut off his hands and feet. So they're taking very brutal revenge on the servants of the household. And Odysseus turns at this moment toward Phemius and says, what about you? You've been singing songs for yeah, these fuckers. Play me a song, you stupid fucker. <laughs> <laughs> and Phoebus throws himself down on Odysseus's mercy, uh, and he hugs his knees, and he says, <laughs> I hug your knees, Odysseus. Mercy, spare my life. What a grief it will be to you for all the years to come if you kill the singer now, who sings for gods and men. I taught myself the craft, but a god has planted deep in my spirit all the paths of song, songs I am fit to sing for you as for a god. Calm your bloodlust now. Don't take my head. He'd bear me out, your own dear son Telemachus. Never of my own will, never for any gain did I perform in your house, singing after the suitors had their feasts. They were too strong, too many. They forced me to come and sing. I had no choice. And after this, Telemachus does back him up, and Odysseus says, okay, I'll, I'll let you go. And I think it's really interesting because he says this is the moment where the artist who has been complicit with a cruel regime comes up for trial. This is Heidegger uh, and Pound in relation to fascism. This is Kipling in relation to the British Empire. This is all the, uh, the poets and, and composers who were loyal to Stalin. And a lot of the claim made on their behalf is, well, they sort of had to or they'd be killed in this regime and you can find subversive elements in their work. Um, and this is the plea the bard makes. He says, I was, th there were too many of those guys. They were stronger than me. So yeah, I sang for them, but it's not really my fault. And Telemachus, again, he's always the one. He says, yeah, leave the bard alone. It's not the bard's fault if this is the way the world is. And mm. Odysseus agrees with that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's, that's a tough one. I kind of maybe agree with a little, but it's, you know, you have to judge it case by case. But I think the real test, Sam, is if there are subversive elements in the song of the bard. Well, what is the bard's song? Is it the poem itself? Yeah, if the, if the bard's song is the Odyssey, where can we find elements in the Odyssey where it seems to question this feudal and aristocratic and colonial order it ostensibly seems to celebrate? Well, the Straussians would say that's a ridiculous errand and we shouldn't try to find justifications, we should in fact try to understand it in its completeness and, and take from it. 
and learn from it. Mm. But the, <laughs> on the other hand, the recent scholarship from post-colonial scholars and Marxist scholars would would take the other side, which is we should find every particular in this poem which implicates the mindless destructive violence and injustice and hypocrisy within their society at the time and then how those things have been um, bequeathed unto Western civilization and we should root it all out, yeah. branch and tree. So those are two extreme... Right. Those are two extreme approaches and quite frankly, we don't, we don't do extreme viewpoints here. No. And we don't endorse <laughs> extreme viewpoints here at GPA. As usual, we're beyond left and right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, no, I think that I, I believe it's the, the, the synthesis and the overcoming of those two positions, which is that you have to see the way in which the text is not identical to itself, the way in which the text is deliberately. I mean, here's the thing, Sam. The glory of poetry is that it dwells on what we were just talking about, which is metaphor, which is when you say two things that aren't like each other are like each other in this particular, but that always has a remainder, the ways in which they aren't like each other. So the poet's task surplus is- Surplus value. Surplus value. <laughs> so the po- <laughs> Oh, boy. Uh, so the poet's task is always the sort of futile effort to bring the world into one whole, but there's always something that escapes. And I think that flight through metaphor and that failure of metaphor is the whole sublimity of poetry. And so I'm not really interested in either the right-wing celebration of the poem's political worldview or the left-wing critique of the poem's political worldview, but of the poem's own undermining of what seems to be its propaganda value. Because that's the... That's a key – that's the real instructive um, thing for guys like us. Yeah. Guys and gals and and everything in between. Yeah. Like us. Right. Is is that se- – you talk about – say it Just say it, say it one more time. What was it? What was I, it s- I said that the poem's interesting in the way that it undermines its own ostensible propaganda value. And that And that's kind of how – if we learn how it does that – Yeah. And how that functions, that is a universal. I that is that, across yeah. every political context in, right. in history. I would go so far as to say if you're a writer and you don't yeah. intend to mean more than you say, then you're not a writer. Well, what comes to mind is Milton's association with the First Republic and uh-huh. Cromwell's excesses of violence and ultimate like 10-year run of, of a failure of a state and Milton's – unenviable position mm-hmm. where he had to work as the propagandic arm of that regime yeah. and chronicle its failure and how he, those endorsements and subversions of that time in history, that momentous time were captured in his epic Paradise Lost yeah. and that we can read and reflect and ruminate and challenge to this day on those dynamics of power. Never a full endorsement, mm-hmm. always an excess. And that's the classic case of the modern epic where, you know, that's been taken in a way opposite the way he seemed to mean it. Right. But really, who's to blame are the Presbyterians? <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> New presbyter is but old priest writ large. Stay, stay tuned in November. We'll do... We'll do, we'll do two weeks on them. <laughs> so, Sam, I thought maybe we'd look at uh, a moment we've referred to a couple times 
to demonstrate where we might find a subversive element in this poem. Do you mind? Please. So this is the moment when the maids, the slave women, as Emily Wilson would have it, are executed. Um, so Telemachus says to them, uh, he, gave, he gives the men their orders. No clean death for the likes of them by God, not from me. They showered abuse on my head, my mother's too, you sluts, the suitors' whores. With that, taking a cable used on a dark, proud ship, he coiled it over the roundhouse, lashed it fast to a tall column, hoisting it up so high no toes could touch the ground. Then, as doves or thrushes beating their spread wings against some snare rigged up in thickets, flying in for a cozy nest, but a grisly bed receives them, so the women's heads were trapped in a line, nooses yanking their necks up one by one, so all might die a pitiful, ghastly death. They kicked up heels for a little, not for long. And so what I hear in that passage is not the poet reveling in this death, which he characterizes as pitiful. He compares them quite lyrically to doves or thrushes. Thrushes, at least, are songbirds, if we're thinking about, you know. Yeah, we haven't <laughs> even talked about birds in this poem. No, go ahead, plenty go ahead. of birds, yeah. Um, they're pitiful uh, ensnarement in the predator's trap. Um, so at this moment, because from the point of view of this society, they've committed a transgression. They've sort of sided against the lord of their household. They've sexually transgressed, I assume, with the suitors as part of the charge, which is why the constant stream of sexual abuse thrown at them by Telemachus and Odysseus. But it, how can you read that metaphor and feel fully comfortable that justice was done? I ask you. It was an excess of rage, and it's a damning depiction of of Odie's um, purported prudence, patience, tact, and wisdom. Yeah, and it's strange to condemn the poem for in for including this when it's precisely by including it that it allows that critical perspective. I would be remiss to not ask you about food. Mm -hmm. in this poem and I'll fuse it with a badass because every 500 or so lines Homer will deploy a perfect stunning metaphor mm -hmm. so you talk about food you could also get into his language or his metaphorical figurative language in this poem but he does it every every couple hundred lines he'll he doesn't always do metaphors no. it's not littered with metaphorical language mm -hmm. but he'll do it yeah and Here's one. This is, I think this is book 15 or 16. So Odie can taste the blood of his uh, suitors. He's working his way back to Ithaca and his rage is building. Mm -hmm. Rage is almost a virtue in this. Yeah, yeah. Courage. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Um, so, and this is what Homer writes in Fagels. So he forced his spirit into submission. The rage in his breast reigned back, unswerving, all endurance. But he himself kept tossing, turning, intent as a cook before some white-hot blazing fire who rolls his sizzling sausage back and forth, <laughs> packed with fat and blood, keen to broil it quickly, tossing, turning it this way, that way. So he cast about. How could he get these shameless suitors in his clutches, one man facing a mob? Yeah, he's cooking up vengeance. <laughs> so food, vengeance, yeah. political loyalty, mm -hmm. 
metaphorical deployment. Where does all this, what sort of constellation are we in this poem? It's an important recurring one. Yeah. Is it simply masculinity, this this masculine urge to eat and kill? <laughs> right. Or what else is going on? Well, Homer often, I think in both the Iliad and the Odyssey, not that they were probably the product of the same, same mind, but the Homer often analogizes what's happening in the action of the poem to common human labor, agricultural, culinary, whatever it may be. That that example you just gave is perfect, but he'll also describe um, uh, in the Iliad, he uses a kind of fisherman metaphor a couple times where he says, uh, you know, he killed he killed his rival soldier like an angler spearing a fish, you know? Mm. Um, so this linking, this bringing everything back home. Isn't that Bob Dylan? Don't you love Bob Dylan? Bringing uh, it all. <laughs> bringing it all. all <laughs> bringing it all home. back home. Yeah, that's what Homer does. <laughs> he brings everything all back home to this sense of the hearth, the land, uh, homely labor, agricultural labor, mm -hmm. and everything, no matter how far flung it is, he can bring it back to something near at hand that we know through our own personal labor. John, I want to talk about really quickly the sense of universality in the myth. I mentioned this earlier, how this narrative narrative has permeated Western culture and has become a way in which the template of our subjective experience is solidified and then lived. Mm. Or like, <laughs> it seems, and I'm willing to grant it that scale. Maybe right. not on a universal scale, and it's like a totally universal scale, and everyone in the in a Western civilization is sort of a priori lodged. I don't know how this shit works lodged or inherits a myth and then is thus raised in it, then can either experience it or not experience it. Mm -hmm. But I will say that if there's, without, you know, sh shamelessly buying into the the power of the Greeks as the cradle of Western civilization and, and going all the way in sort of a knuckleheaded way like that. But I will say that, I mean, they are the cradle of Western civilization, but just being a, a fanboy for that shit. Um, when I was reading it, I have about, I probably have five or six, I'd call them enemies because that's cruel and inflammatory, but I have five or six people in my life that represent opposition, obstacle, challenge, mm -hmm. wickedness in some cases to me. Mm -hmm. And I noticed as I was reading, reading this test, text, I read it over two days, at certain points in the text, the memory and the spirit of each one of those people appeared to me mm -hmm. in the text and I appeared to it with the courage and the steadfastness of Odysseus mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the moving through. Yeah. So it was, it was this uncanny mirror, psychological mirror back into my own right. journey. And I, I, I know I'm not alone with that, but it was such a moving and powerful experience. And it's such a an experience of self mastery and endurance, and and narrative and self consciousness and subjectivity, that I'm willing to grant it every all the acclaim 
that it's been given. I'm willing even to match the five stars you gave it on JohnPastelli.com. But does that does that does that does that at all resonate with you? What is that power? Because it's unique. Yeah, I think it's um, there is something finally uncanny about it. I'm not I'm not a materialist, you know. Um, there's a uh, I was once reading, I once read a review of uh, a book by Franco Moretti, the sort of technocratic digital humanities scholar who began as, I think, a very materialist, uh, reductionist Marxist. And he says in his book, masterpieces are not miracles, they're work. And that's not true. Uh, because <laughs> if that were true, I'd write one every single day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can't. Uh I don't even know if I've written one. I hope I've written at least one. But they, when you, when you write something that feels like a masterpiece, it doesn't feel like work. It feels like the goddess is singing through you. You know what I mean? Uh, it feels like you're the channel for something else. And I think that that happens in this poem. I, I'm I'm not embarrassed to use this mystical language. Um, I think that it it channels some very primordial human experiences. So are you, are you saying, John, are you saying that the Odyssey, is this one of the main things that it does well, that it, that it magnificently achieves is this depiction, it itself being a paragon of the ephemeral, godly nature of artistic inspiration? Yes. Yes. 